time. Rally Caps on. We're hopping in with episode three. Um, today we had on Dennis Sarfate. Dennis uh, pitched parts of six seasons in the major leagues with three different organizations, uh, played in Japan, and went on to have a um, Hall of Fame level career there. Was, was league MVP, five-time champ, led the league in saves numerous times. Uh, so we think this is going to be something you guys really get a lot out of. T. Willie, what did you think about that interview? It was awesome. You get to hear – a, a perspective of a guy that you usually hear guys who are like MVPs or they're currently major leaguers or they're, they've had success their entire career. And it's cool to see uh, just the adversity that he battled through and some of the things that he went through and some of the things that he maybe would have gone through had he not uh, continued to pursue his baseball career. So it's just pretty awesome to hear a perspective of a guy who it's not the average story that you're gonna that you're gonna hear from totally standard major leaguer. He, he did it all too. I thought it was cool just hearing hearing his journey, right? Going from all American at the high school level, big time college division one college baseball, draft out of high school, JUCO, minor leagues, succeeding in minor leagues, getting to major leagues, not having as so much success. And so I think yeah, uh, from starter to the bullpen, yeah. it just he's he got a really unique coaster, story for you sure. Know? So. Yeah, I think you guys are going to love this one. Um, give it a listen. Uh, as we mentioned before, uh, please like and subscribe. Spread this to any any uh, friends or fans who you guys think uh, might enjoy it. And, uh, yeah, keep hitting us with the feedback, guys. We really appreciate all the support. Yeah, we're going to make it a mission to our listeners. Tell at least one friend every time you listen, a new friend, new friend about it, and get them to get them to chime in as well. And uh, if, we wanna, if you want to hear any other interviews or you know someone who's uh, willing to do one, let us know. And we'll uh, we'll get that set up. We appreciate it. Let's get into it. Rally caps on. All right. Well, here we are on our first interview on Rally Caps On podcast. Uh, thank you, Dennis, for joining us. So uh, here is a guy who was uh, recently named MVP in 2017 of the Nippon Japan League. Uh, won Japan Series MVP that year. Uh, won the championship as well. Has the record for most saves in a season. Uh, just an incredible guy. He's won the championship in Japan five different times, three-time All-Star, three-time save leader, 1.04 ERA in his MVP season. Incredible. Uh, let's just look here. He's um, got 234 career saves uh, and played over six years in the major leagues with Houston, Baltimore, and Milwaukee. All right, let's just get right into it. Let's start at the beginning. So um, you were an All-American in high school. And you were recruited by ASU and their perennial powerhouse. Uh, when did you know that you were going to quote unquote uh, make it? And like, when did you have that moment? Man, that goes back a long ways. When I was a sophomore in high school, they were trying to make me be a catcher. And I remember we were in Red Mountain playing, and I, I told the coaches, like, my knees are killing me. Like, what? Did, I was just trying to pitch out every other, every other call was a pitch out. I'm trying to throw guys out at first. I mean, I'm just showing off the arm, but my knees, I just couldn't do it. Um, and I remember the the transition over to being a pitcher. I didn't like it. You know, I, I, I wanted to be in the action. So I didn't like sitting out, you know, one game a week or two games a week. I played short. I played right field. Uh, so when I went into pitching my junior year is when there were a couple guys ahead of me that were seniors, and I remember scouts being at the games, and that was my first like uh, introduction to, oh, there's actually people that watch these games that can make decisions later on. Um, and I remember going and starting a game my junior year, 
And after that, the scouts started watching me instead of the seniors. And instantly I, I knew I was like, I think I might have something here. Um, I don't remember how hard I was throwing. It couldn't have been that hard because I, I was drafted in the 15, 15th round out of high school. So if I was throwing really hard, it would have been a lot, a lot better. But um, yeah, that's probably the first time in my junior year is when I realized like, oh, I'm, I think I have a chance to play beyond high school. Right. Uh, so what led to the decision of uh, going to ASU instead of signing at a high school? Yeah, that was a tough one. Uh, I kind of got myself in trouble. I said that it was going to take a million dollars to sign me. It was one of those stupid. Yeah, you got to set the bar high. You got to set the bar high, right? Yeah, 17-year-old mistakes. Uh, I pitched a game against a, a team from Davis, Colorado, and Murph was there, saw me throw. I think I threw a seven-inning shutout, and he offered me a scholarship right after the game on the spot. And at that point, I knew, okay, I can go to ASU, which was close to home. I don't think I was ready to leave yet. Or I could take a chance and sign for – I mean, they still offered me. It was 450 they offered me at a high school, which at that point you have all these people telling you what you're going to get and what you should get. And I think we just got bad information. I probably should have signed. But, it, I mean, in, in the end, looking back, it all worked out. Um, but I, I, it was an easy decision for me to go to ASU with the talent that was there the guys I knew going there um, and the play for the Sun Devils. I mean, I grew up, I grew up here for the most part. So it was definitely an honor. Um, and once I made that decision, it was almost like, Oh, it's easy. Like I, this is going to be fun. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. So t- Dennis, take us through, um, I guess, what was the transition from ASU to Chandler Gilbert and kind of what, where were you at at that point in the career? Sure. Yeah. So then you go from being the man pitcher of the year, all American, and you get to ASU and there's 15 all Americans and everyone that was Johnny high school is on your team. And, uh, right away I was like, I'm good enough, but man, there's a lot of guys here that got drafted third round, fourth round, sixth round. So you start to put yourself up against those guys statistically, uh, what they got as far as a scholarship, which, you know, in state a full ride, I think was 40% 40% of a, of a full, you know, yeah. out of state one. So I had a full ride, but I'm looking at these guys like they were way better than me. Freshman year did okay. Got into some trouble off the field. Um, stupid adolescent stuff where you just learn. Um, got to my sophomore year and I just realized that I wasn't a, an, I wasn't a student athlete. I was definitely more of an athlete, which was a weird thing for me because in high school I was a straight A student. And I got to ASU and all that kind of just went out the door. Uh, And I remember sitting there thinking, I can either try to make it for another year and a half scholastically and do do better in school, or I can just transfer out. And um, I remember going in, I I actually went to Doyle Wilson first at Chandler Gilbert. And I was like, hey, you need another pitcher? And he was like, what are you joking? Because he had recruited me at South Mountain. And I was like, no, I think, I think I'm going to leave ASU today. And I remember him saying, if you leave ASU today, I'll have your uniform ready tomorrow. And so I, I drove right back over to Tempe, talked to Jay Safara. I was like, Hey, is Murph around? And I had kind of seen, there were some things that happened during the summer that I knew I was going to be fighting for some barely any time. Scouts were calling my dad, telling me to get me out of there, that I was ruining my, my chances later on. And so I just kind of saw it. Murph wouldn't meet with me. 
So I just told Safair, I was like, hey, I'm out. I'm going to pack up my locker and I'll be out of here. And I, I just withdrew and went over to Chandler Gilbert. And to this day, probably the best decision I ever made. I, and I also left with another, with Andre Ethier. He did the same thing that same day. Murph told him that he would never make it and he would never hit in college. And uh, the guy goes to Chandler yep. Gilbert. He has, he has 101 hits in like 45 games. <laughs> best, player, best player in junior college and ended up going back to ASU, I think, out of spite yeah. to, just to prove him wrong. Yeah. So was, yeah. was there that kind of led me into my next question? Was there some other guys other than uh, just as you mentioned, Ethier? Were there some other dudes that were uh, that made it to the majors from that team, or were the two guys that left their best ones? Uh another guy who left. Who was it? Uh, Ryan Coffin never made it, but he he played pretty pretty good years with the Diamondbacks in the minor leagues. Um, I mean, Ian Kinsler left. He left because he was told yeah. he wasn't good enough to play short. So you know. And I, and I don't blame Murph. I've actually seen Murphy since then. He's congratulated me on my career. I mean, I got to play 20 years. So right. if that made me better, then great. Um, I definitely learned a lot about myself from that. I look back and I made a lot of mistakes. So I can't throw this all on Murph. But I definitely made mistakes myself as a, as a young 18-year-old punk that was pretty good at baseball. Um, but yeah, for me, Ether probably the only two from that from that era of time that made it to the big leagues. Wow, that's pretty cool. Uh, so let's let's jump back to the minors now. Once you got to the minors, what was that next step like, and how did you how did you transition from there? And was it is it really what they say it is riding buses every day and you're just grinding, playing back and forth? And tell us a little bit about the minors. Yeah, that was brutal. So I got my signing bonus. I go away. I think I'm hot shit, you know, and uh, I remember flying into Idaho Falls and it was a, like, the, the pilot started the plane from outside, like, just flung the propeller. <laughs> um, and I remember, like, well, I guess we're doing this. And I remember landing and just being with all these. Now now it's like the whole college thing. You measure yourself up against everyone that came from Cali, Colorado, Texas. Well, now you're you know, you're with guys that are first round or second round. I signed for 500. I signed for 750. And it's like, yeah. well, where do I compare? Um, and I just remember getting there and being like, where am I? Uh, and I, I look back and it's like, I wasn't throwing that hard. When I got drafted from Chandler Gilbert, I was throwing 90 to 93. I topped out at 94 occasionally. I just never lost velocity. So I was consistent for, I remember the last game I threw was against Yabapai in the playoffs. And I literally, from, for seven innings, I was 91 to 93, didn't go below. Um, but I, I didn't have that arm strength that everyone thought you should as a ninth rounder. It was just more projectability. And right off the bat, I get elbow surgery. I, I lose sensation into my hand, my nerves flipping over my bone. And there were, that was the first spring training I went to. So a lot of the guys I, I draft, got drafted with were released already. A lot of guys don't understand that. When you get drafted – the top 20 round guys stay the next year. All those other guys are gone unless they make an impression right away. Yeah. Unless they're um, 300. And back then it was the draft and follow. So they still, we still had some guys like my, my good friend, even to this day with Manny Parr, who was a 26 rounder that ended up signing the next year for 1.2 million. Um, so that was still back in that era of time was the draft and follow, which was one of the greatest things ever. I don't even think they still do that. Um, so I remember going and having surgery and coming back like, I better show something or I'm out. 
I'm going to be gone. And Steve Klein, who was the, the Arizona league pitching coach for the Brewers said, Hey, Hey, sweet. He always called me sweet pea. Hey, sweet pea. I got to change your mechanics because, uh, it's not looking, not looking so good. Eh. So I was like, well, you don't expect to hear that from a guy who I just got drafted. I just got drafted. They gave me over a hundred grand. I figured I was pretty decent. Yeah. And I remember working with him daily on just ridiculous things and doing it over and over. And my first outing, I remember Russ Luce came with Doyle because it was in Arizona. And uh, I remember coming out of the gates. I'm wearing jersey number 69, which Russ and Doyle still give me crap <laughs> to this day. And it just shows you the kind of person I was back when I was like 19 and 20 years old. And my first my first inning, I'm 97 to 100. Wow. And the, brewer, the Brewers are like, who, who is this guy? Yeah. And I figured that was probably on it like – that was my tryout. Like this guy better come back throwing hard yep. or he's gone. And I came out of the gates and they, they pushed me through. I went to the next level, finished the year in, in advanced rookie. And then I remember going to spring training the next year. Like, I think I'm one of the best pitchers in, in the entire minor leagues, like literally one of the best pitchers. I was 98 to hundred with a decent breaking ball and a changeup as a starter. And they got me for the ninth round. So they, they knew what they had. And I got actually put on the roster pretty, pretty early. So I was on the 40-man after my second full season. Wow. And so I never experienced what guys experience as far as salary. So the first year I made 800 a month. And then the next year when I got hurt, I was making, I think, 1000 a month. But then the next year I got put on the roster, I was making six grand a month for – a 21 year old, that's pretty good. You know, yeah. You're not going to complain about that. Yeah, right. Um, getting high. For sure. So, so I, I, I didn't experience that side of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's lucky for sure. Definitely. Um, so, going back to that huge jump in the velocity, what, so what, as you're going through and you're, you're working with Steve, is that something, could you tell like that the ball was coming out different or was that, was that kind of a surprise to you when you went out to that outing and all of a sudden we're, hit triple digits and just lined up the radar gun. Yeah, it was a total shock. Really? Literally, uh, I remember telling him, I just don't feel it. I just don't feel it. I feel like I'm throwing pus. And he's wow. like, let me tell you something. The ball is coming out of your hand just fine. And until you get that radar gun on you, that was always my gauge. Like even up until I was, you know, MVP in 2017, when I come into a game, my warmups, I check the velocity. I want to know what I have. And I know exactly if I'm warming up at 94, it's going to be a very good day. But if I'm warming up at 90 and I'm grunting, oof, better get someone hot real quick. Yeah, you better hit some spots, right? Yeah. And so that's what it was. So I, I kind of got that confidence like, oh, I am throwing harder. And then once I started to really feel it, I was, it was three years throwing harder and I make it through, you know, A ball, double A. Then you start getting in the point where you're like, I'm close to the big leagues. And you start feeling that pressure. I'm, I'm on the 40-man roster. I'm 20, 23 years old. And I'm sitting there as a starter on the roster in AA thinking, I can get called up the next day. You never know. Right. Uh, you're so close. So I remember sitting there and just dominating and not getting, getting passed over and passed over never getting called up. And I remember going to AAA and getting passed over by guys in AA. And I was like, I don't get it. 
And it was just because I didn't throw three pitches for a strike. You know, I was a power arm that was probably suited for the bullpen anyway. And uh, my organization, they kept me as a starter. Finally, I just went in there and I pleaded with them. I was like, please just put me in the bullpen. I don't want to start no more. And then I went to bullpen two weeks. Next thing I know, I'm in the big leagues. And, and that was it. So funny thing is, I, you know, Luce calls me Sarfate. My, the real way you pronounce my name is Sarfate because it's Italian. When I got to the big leagues, I get called up and Bob Euchre's in the, in the clubhouse. I'm the first one there. And he's like, hey, kid. And I'm like, oh, shit, this, <laughs> this is real now. Now this is like major league, Bob. Yeah. And uh, hey, how do you say your last name? And I'm like, well, it's I go by Sarfe, but it's actually Sarfate. But just call me Sarfe. I'm going to call you Sarfate. I was like, all right, all right. And then every city I would go to, they'd be like, he would tell the announcers what to call me. And so the first year, it's Sarfate. So then people back home are seeing me pitch. They're like, I have I didn't even know it was you because they butchered your name. <laughs> and so even to this day, some people I'll see me, they'll be like, is it Sarfate or Safali? I was like, dude, just call me whatever you want. I don't even care. Yeah. I was, I was about to ask the same question, so I'm glad we cleared that up. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's go to your Major League debut. Uh, September 3rd, 2006. I believe it was against the yeah. Marlins, right? Yeah, here it is. Here's, uh, it's on my desk. Awesome. First, major league, first Major League strikeout. Josh Willingham. Nice. Awesome. My, uh, my mom, my dad, they're divorced. They flew in. My wife was only my girlfriend. Uh, she flew in. And, uh, yeah, it was the greatest experience. Uh, first two days, I didn't get in. But then I remember coming into that game. I went an inning and a third. I think I punched out three. And getting done with that game, I just remember getting done and being like, oh, my goodness, I just punched out a guy in the big leagues. I, you know, you don't know as a kid. You're, yeah. I'll make it to the big leagues, maybe. Um, and then I kind of just rode that wave. I kind of got a little bit. I got into trouble a couple games in, since, in St. Louis. I got to face Bonds that year. Um, got to face Pujols that year as a young – like when Pujols was like in the prime of his career. Uh, and that kind of got me – that kind of got my, you know, my feet wet and – uh, you kind of look at those guys like they're just hitters. They're not anything special after you face them. And it was an experience I'll never, I'll probably never forget. What? So, like, I think for all of us that grew up playing baseball, like that's that's something like your debut in the big leagues. Like that's something I thought about a million times. What's that like for someone who's done it? What's that like? Like, what are the emotions? What are you feeling? Are you nervous? Are you not? Yeah, the the first two days I was nervous. You know, you're there, you're trying to get the. I knew a lot of the other guys because I'd been in spring training for four years with them. So, you know, every year they're telling me, "Oh, you're going to make." One year I went ten innings scoreless in spring training, got sent down the last day. You know, the next year I go eleven and a third, one run, get sent down the next day. So, you know, you get up there, you're familiar with the guys. Our clubhouse was older. I was very young. Uh, I was the youngest guy on the team. Uh, well, actually, no, Prince Fielder was. But as a pitcher, I was by far the youngest. Mm. And you're trying to see, do you belong? And so you, you don't belong until you throw in your first game. Yeah. And I remember going into that game where I come, I get done, and guys like Rick Helling, Dan Cole, uh, Derek Turnbull, all these guys are like, hey, great job. You know, your stuff was electric. And you're like, oh, I guess I am good enough to be here. But you're warming up the ball. You're <laughs> – you're trying not to kill people in the stands, you know, 
you know your you know your girlfriend's there and you know your mom and dad are there and they're probably having an emotional meltdown all of the all in all it's like you kind of just zone that out and you're on the mound you're like i still got to go get guys out i still got to make pitches we've seen so many guys make their debut and you know they give up a grand slam or it was good to go out there and dominate and to make your presence felt and to be like, Hey, I belong here and I'm here to stay. And you just try to prove yourself every time out the rest of that year. Um, it's a hard thing. You know, a lot of, a lot of guys go the other way and they have one outing and they get sent out. So I, I was very blessed to, to get the opportunity. And man, I look back on it to, to, and someone asked me today, it's so weird. He's like, if I was going to play a video game, what game would I buy with you on it? And it never hit me because I played with myself before in a video game and yeah. you don't think about it, but I'm on a video game, which as a kid would have been the coolest thing in the entire world. Like we all made our own little things. We made our own avatars and we had that, but we never truly were like your stats, your face. Uh, and so all of that in one day just came to life. And it, it's yeah. one of the greatest moments ever. Yeah. What was the coolest stadium you ever played in? Like as far as the atmosphere and the clubhouse, like what, like best conference? Uh, so atmosphere, you have to separate because atmosphere blows away the clubhouse. So like Yan- old Yankee Stadium, the clubhouse is terrible, but mm-hmm. best atmosphere. Wrigley, clubhouse, terrible, but best atmosphere. Fenway, same thing. So like all the old ones, like you would be like, wow, Fenway, I went and signed the, the green monster on the inside. Um, best clubhouse, St. Louis or the new Yankee Stadium. The new Yankee Stadium clubhouse goes from like behind home plate to the right field wall. It's just, it's just ridiculous. Wow. <laughs> it's so big. They have a room with just a, with massage chairs and like a, like a relaxation room Wow. for the visitors, which is crazy. Yeah. So, but all the stadiums in the big leagues are legit because you, you, you think about who played there. You know, I'm walking through Memorial Park at, in Yankee, old Yankee Stadium and you see the plaques and you see all the, the monuments and you're like, geez, this, this is the history that's here. Babe Ruth hit home runs here, Yeah, you know, and uh, that always set the precedent really high. For sure. Um, so you played in every single stadium, right? Um, you I didn't play in the new Shea. I didn't play in the new Shea. The new Atlanta. So any of the new stadiums after 2011, I didn't play in. Okay. But yeah, while you were playing, though, you played in pretty much every one of them because you were in both. Pretty much every one. Yeah. You you said earlier that first year you got to face Bonds, you faced Young Pujols. Who's the toughest out or I guess just toughest hitter that you face? On sheer, just pure, you get in the box and I'm instantly a little terrified. Yeah. Yeah. Gary Sheffield. Ooh, yeah, to this day, the, the, the most scariest hitter I've ever faced. Um, and I faced him actually. I, the Baltimore Orioles really dicked me around a couple of times where they put me in as a starter. And I, I would throw like three innings, 30 pitches, and then they're like, hey, you're going to start in four days. And I would go five innings, 85 pitches, you know. And I remember facing Detroit as a, as a starting pitcher against Verlander. And their lineup was, you know – Maglio, Ordonez, uh, Polanco, uh, Edgar Renteria, Miguel Cabrera, um, uh, uh, Victor Martinez. I mean, the lineup was so stacked. The only out in the lineup was, I think at the time, geez, I don't even know who it was. Maybe 
maybe Marcus Timms or someone like that. And he's you know, still he was really good and, too. And he was still pretty good, you know. Yeah. Maybe Grano Granderson might have been the first the first batter. It was a leadoff hitter. Yeah. But you face Gary Sheffield and he gets comes up and he's doing this whip whip yeah. the bat and like if I miss this guy is gonna kill me. Yeah, swinging that thing like <laughs> and, a toothpick. Yeah, and you know, he took me deep, not in that game, but he took me deep as a reliever. Um, but he's by far the scariest. I mean, Bonds got in there. He's big, but you're like, I had a, I, you know, I had a big strike zone to him. I'm not going to throw him a strike, so I'm just pitching the other batter's box. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't really scared of him. Yeah. Uh, how about just best hitter that you faced? So maybe not someone you were like nervous to face or most intimidating, but who 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 did you feel like was the best pure hitter you faced? Oh man, that's a hard one. He pretty much faced everyone. David Ortiz. Yeah. Even though I got him out pretty much every – I think he got one base hit off me. Uh, he would take the ball to the left. He would take the single. You know, he wasn't trying to go deep off me. He, he, was, he was a tough out. I got, you know, I got to face that Boston lineup with Manny Ramirez and all that, and I had good success against Manny. I had good – AL East, I dominated. It was the shit teams like Cleveland where I sucked. Yeah. You know, and, and just made – and I beat myself. Like, I killed myself. Um, but, yeah, I would, I would have to say David Ortiz. He was, he was tough. Pedroia owns me. Pedroia's two for four off me, I think. Yeah. That's awesome getting to face all those guys. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's go on to the, uh, the transition year. Uh, I believe it was 2010, right, where you uh, – we say we see you played a year in Mexico. And then no, no, I played winter ball in Mexico in 2009. I tore my artery in my shoulder. And so I got, I got the spring training in 2010 and the Orioles took me off the roster. So instead of opting out, they owed me a ton of money to go to AAA. So I ended up taking my assignment and going to AAA, probably one of the highest played AAA guys that year for just doing nothing. I mean, I was a closer and I had a really good year. I put up a two eight with 20 saves. And the Orioles would not call me up. I don't know what I did. Um, the writing was on the wall. I was at the breaking point of I'm going to retire or I'm going to do something else or go to a different team. And I remember during that season, my agent calls me. And he's like, hey, this team in Hiroshima wants you. Uh, do you want to go to Japan? I'm like, sure. I mean, what the hell? I'm... And then the Orioles said, no, you're not going to Japan. We're paying you enough to stay in AAA. And it was like almost like they were punishing me, but I didn't do anything wrong. So I got done with that season. And I remember being, a, I was going to be a free agent. We begged the team not to put me on the roster again. They said that they would, they would oblige that they wouldn't put me on. And my agent called me and he's like, Hey, this team really wants you. Do you want to sign? So I ended up signing a two year deal to go to Hiroshima. And uh, when I went there that year, the first year, the first day I got there, shell shocked, where the hell am I thinking to myself, I'll be here for like three months and I'm out. Yeah. Right. And I, I was there and I was there for 10 years. Yeah. It's crazy. When you just think of the timeline, you went from begging just to go to the bullpen to do anything you could to do, get on. And then you're begging them to stay off the team. At the yeah. End. And it's just, I knew I was going to make more. I knew that they would put me on. They would probably tender me a contract. It was going to be for the league minimum, which at that point was four fifty. 
And I knew that my first contract in Japan would be at least a million. I had a kid. My oldest, my daughter was at that time, she was two. And I was like, I think it's probably best if I just go and try this out. Um, you know, but with that million dollars comes the reality that you're going to a foreign yeah. country that you have no idea about. And I remember just getting there. Thank God I had some cool guys on my team, cool foreigners. Um, but that first year, I took that league and I just dominated. I think I had like a one a one point zero nine with thirty five saves. Second year, my wife ends up getting sick, um, health issues. I tear my uh, adductor. I go home. I come back. I lose my my closer role, and then I get released at the they, at the end of the year. They just released me from my contract, so I was a free agent again. Probably done here because I was hurt. And I thought I was done with baseball and the Cebu lions called me and they're like, Hey, we think you got something left. Would you want to come to Tokyo? And I'm like, geez, I guess, you know, they're going to pay me a million dollars. Who's going to say no to that? Right. Even though I, at the same time I had my second kid, you know, another girl, do I want to leave again? And, uh, my wife and I were just like, we can't turn down a million dollars. So I left and she told me before I left, she's like, if you, if I'm pregnant again, I'm not coming this year. Cause it was the Fukushima, the whole nuclear disaster. Yeah. She was scared. She was scared to live in Tokyo because there was still fallout and there was still all this rumors of all the kind of nonsense that was been going on with that. And, uh, sure enough, she's pregnant. I get to spring training and <laughs> she calls me and she's like, I'm not coming. And, uh, I was just like, wow, this is going to be interesting. So I remember being there the whole year. They came for three weeks out of nine months. And I remember being miserable. And I had I put up a 1-8, saved 10, 1-10, and then held, I think, 20-something games. And the team offers me less money the next year. So I was, a, I was a free agent. So I was like, I'm not coming back there for less money. And I waited and I waited. And then finally the team that I'm with now, SoftBank called me and they gave me a two year deal. And I, I was just ecstatic. I was like, yeah, I'm in. And I went back and I was with that team. I signed a two year deal, a three year deal, and then a three year deal. Wow. And that, that's where I'm at now. Yeah. What was the biggest uh, culture shock? Uh, you, you mentioned it earlier, but it's like, did you have a translator when you got there or did you? I had a translator all the time. Kimmy oh. was my first one. Uh, all of my translators have been amazing. Uh, I still talk to the two that I'm with my last team all the time. I still talk to Kimmy from the Hiroshima Carp team. Uh, just solid guys. They all came to the States and went to college. Uh, Tepe, my one translator with the Hawks, actually played at a showcase in Florida and did that for a couple of years, but uh, taught himself English. So they played but too. Some of them played. They played too, yeah. And some of the best guys I've ever hung out with. These are these are like guys I'll be friends with for my life. Awesome. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And, uh, you know, culture shock, the food for sure. Yeah. The what, food the for sure. Best food they got there. What, what was your go-to dish when you were comfortable with it? Yakiniku. Yakiniku is just, you cook meat, you cook it yourself. You have a fire at your table and you cook your own meat, vegetables, soup. But the first, the first morning I got there, the breakfast, the lady comes out and lays this full fish fried on my plate. It's 6.15 in the morning and I'm like, I need a bowl of cereal. So I remember going to the grocery store and getting like 
the Japanese version of Cocoa Pebbles. <laughs> and I remember just being so happy the next day I had a piece of toast and cereal and the Japanese guys just laugh because, you know, you're not used to it. You know, us for right. breakfast, we can eat anything. These guys eat miso soup. Uh, they'll have fish. They'll have steak. They'll have rice. And it's like, that's breakfast? And that's now what my wife and I, we enjoy that best for breakfast. Yeah. You know, we just got used to it where I can eat fish for breakfast now. It's no no big deal. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. What? How about the uh, – what's the biggest – What's the biggest difference between, I guess, style of play or just baseball itself here in the States versus Japan? So here, you practice is not the the big part. The game is the most important there. Practice is your most important part. And the game is your reward. And so the Japanese guys fundamentally outwork major league players every day of the week. You're talking about catchers throwing to bases, blocking balls, uh, doing every little drill they can every day. Pitchers throwing off the mound. I saw a guy throw 300 pitch bullpen in spring training. You know, not I'm not ad- allocating for that. Like I don't think that's smart. Right. But what they do, they throw four pitches for a strike every single one of them. Uh, you see more 3-0 breaking balls than you've ever seen in your life, and Hitters take thousands. I think they want to swing 5,000 times before they leave spring training, which is just, it's unheard of, you know, and uh, it's their work ethic. It's they take every, every ground ball they take. It's fundamentally uh, what they want to work on, but they don't ever let their talent take over. So for them, like I, you know, one of my best shortstops ever, JJ Hardy, J.J. Hardy can go out there and field ground balls at short and throw them across, backhand, you know, go to, go to his left. Easy. The Japanese guys have to get in front of the ball. So they'll do everything they can to slide over and get in front of the ball and then make a throw. And they all don't have strong – like my shortstop in my team, guy could throw 95 off the hill. So he had a cannon. So he can get in front of it and throw guys out, but – a regular Japanese shortstop gets in front of it. If you have any kind of speed, you're beating it out at first. Yeah. So the fundamental side of it is so built into their structure and so beat into their brains that they'll give up the talent side and letting their raw ability take over to do the fundamental things right. Where you have a guy like Otani, who is a major league player, and they just let him play and do his t- let his talent take over. Yeah, and they'll let certain guys do that, but not every. Like our guy, Yanagita, is the best player in Japan. He might be the best player I've ever seen. Uh, but he's thirty three now, and he just signed a seven year, forty five million dollar deal. He'll never come over here, yeah. which is sad to me because I thought he would be the one. He's up for the triple crown almost every season. Wow, and he just had no interest in coming over to the states. Yeah, if you win a triple crowns, I don't see why you would either, right? Yeah, he's just like, ah, I'm good here. You know, yeah. he's just one of those guys that doesn't want to doesn't want to take that chance. Wow. Um, so let's go to your approach on the mound. Um, it, it, do you do you consider stats or do you just go after them? Or what, what's your what's your approach? <laughs> I know Jaime's waiting for this one. Um, <laughs> I I know now the game has changed so much with stats video spin rate and all of that for me i knew it was going to be a good game when i warmed up 
I could tell if I had life on my ball, if, if my fork ball was going to, was, was falling, I can go in there with two pitches and I'd be okay. Uh, mentally, I always would always tell myself three things, stay back over the rubber, drive it right through the catcher. And I don't give a shit who the hitter is. And that was the three things I repeated myself over and over because a lot of guys can, will look at the lineup and they'll be like, you're going to get ready for this guy. And then they look and they're like, Oh crap, but this guy's next. If I don't get him out, this guy's next. Yeah. Who cares? Who cares about who cares about who's coming up? And I wish I had that mindset earlier in my career, you know, where I feel like that mindset gives instead of, you know, you always heard coaches say, pitch to contact, pitch to contact. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard back in the day. Right. It should have been said, it should have been said something a, a different way. It should have been said, hey, who gives a shit who the hitter is? Make your pitches, right. you know, because pitch to contact. Like, what does that mean? Throw the ball down the middle. Yeah. Like, you know, like guys, like I always interpret like pitch. To, I don't want this guy to hit it. I want to strike him out. I want him to swing and miss every time. Yeah. Where when I go in there and I say, I don't give a shit who the hitter is. I already have the edge on him because pitchers already have the edge. Right. We hold the ball. Yeah. You don't know what's coming. And, and you got nine guys take- behind you. And we have nine guys behind us. We could take a little off. I mean, the dimensions in baseball were set that way for a reason. There's a reason why the field is set the way it is. Um, and so once I changed my mind, my mindset on that, it changed my game. I, I would go through innings, sometimes seven pitches and be like, sweet. Where back in the day, if I didn't strike out all three guys, or if I gave up a hit and then a double play, it's like, I shouldn't give up that hit. And it's like, no, who cares? Like you pitch the contact, but say it a different way. Yeah. You know, throw the ball in the zone because you don't care who the hitter is and he's not going to hit your shit if you make your pitches. Yep. Do you think that's something like that shift in mindset and just understanding that do you attribute, because obviously you had such a long career and performed at such a super high level, even later into your career, I guess, what do you attribute that to? Obviously it sounds like the mental aspect of that was a big a big thing for you, the mental, and I'll tell you what, and I, and I and I think a lot of guys would agree with me on this. When you're young and you're trying to make it, and you haven't made any money yet, there is a huge burden on your shoulders. You have to number one get major league hitters out. Number two, you have to stick around. Number three, you have a family. Most important is your family, and you have to provide for them. So if you don't do a and B, C's, C's not getting provided for. Yeah, C's out of the once I, started, once I started making my money and I was like, okay, financially, if I got released tomorrow, I could survive for five years making, you know, stocking shelves at Safeway and pay the bills and be fine. But then once you get to that point where you've made enough money to say, ah, screw it, you, it takes a burden off of you and you're like, oh, I just got to go out there and make pitches. And now I'm telling you, it, was, it wasn't until I fought, especially when I got to Japan, I fought like, you're taking money off my table. You're taking food from my children. No chance. I'm going to dominate you. And then once I signed my first two-year deal with the team I'm with now, I was financially set for years. And I was like, okay, I still have that desire, but there's not this other thing on my, on my shoulders. So now it's just like dominate and I get to go home. And yeah. then I signed a three-year deal. Then it was just like, oh, now I'm playing with the house's money. Now this is, this is fun. You know, I'm right. going out there. I'm smiling, you know. 
and punching tickets. And then I got another three-year deal and I was just like, and, and that's the thing is you see guys like Teixeira who signed a five-year $125 million deal with the Yankees or 105, whatever ended up being. And he never looked like he was upset and he had some really bad years. Oh, and he yeah. got hurt and he finished hurt. It's because there was that burden taken away. You know, nah. it's the, it's the guys who are trying to survive that are trying to make a living yep. that it's, it's harder on them than it's the, when you're financially set and you're like, you know what, if baseball ended tomorrow, we could live and I could never work again, but we're men and we have to work and we're going to work. And no matter what you're going to do, you're not going to just retire and go sit on a chair the rest of your life. Right. But that was a big burden released off my shoulders. And I think that confidence with my mindset of screw the hitter, they have to figure out what I'm throwing. If I threw three pitches for a strike, I mean, that's really hard to, it's really hard to hit. Like I hit, I had two at bats like one year as a, as a closer, they didn't double switch in our league in Japan. And I ended up facing another American who threw me four sliders in a row. And I'm sitting here like, like, come on, man. Yeah. Are you, I'm like, Jay, are you kidding me? I haven't hit in 10 years and you throw me four <laughs> sliders. I'm trying to take them off the, off, off the friggin' flagpole. Oh yeah. You have to. And, and I'm, and I'm like slider. And I finally, I took an O2 pitch for a slider for a ball. And I looked out of him. I dropped the bat. I was like, are you kidding me? And then I struck out on the slider. <laughs> and I realized at that point, like, he was throwing 90. If he would have threw me 90 down the middle, it would have been hard. Yeah. You know? But now he's throwing me pitches that come out of his hand looking like 90. And it's a slider. It's breaking three feet. And I'm, I have no chance. Right. So hitting's hard. Pitchers have to realize that it's hard to hit. You have control. Um, it's all and on you. So and the you mentioned earlier um, – what. I guess my question is, what would you be doing, let's say, two years into the minor leagues, it, like one of, something doesn't go right and you're, you're back out into the streets? What, what does Dennis Sarfay do at that point? What would yeah, you do? Yeah, I, I, I probably, because I'm a gunny, I probably would have went into law enforcement of some sort. Um, I'm kind of I'm thinking back then, what would I have done? I was too stupid for economics or anything like that. Now, so like, I didn't know anything about how money works and how the world works. Um, but I think probably law enforcement now, I mean, I, now I'm dabbling in politics. So, um, that's an interesting field, you know, where we yeah. are as a society, <laughs> a, a lot of things have gone wrong over the last, uh, what 30 something days um but yeah i mean our country's been heading down a, a dark hole for a long time and yeah. i think it's because we've allowed politicians to stay in office for way longer than they should have been and so i i just think more people should engage politics that have good morals because we're the ones that back away like ah, i don't want to do that because i don't want to get sucked in but no like we're the ones that you you go into it and you stay solid and you don't give yeah. in to the, to the, the extreme side of sin and just, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take money from this. I, you know, you just kind of stick to your morals and you stick with it. Uh, so that's what I'm kind of doing now on the side. Um, Cause I'm still under contract. So I still have a year left of my deal. So I'm not retired. I still am trying to, with the help of your partner here, um, possibly throw again, but obviously it's everything stacked against me. Um, but the younger me, definitely law enforcement. All right. Nice.
Very cool. So uh, I guess final question for me, Dennis, if you could get in a time machine, work time, go back, what's a, what piece of advice would you give a young Dennis Sarkate? Stop listening to all the coaches. I was so like wound up with listening to each one and, Oh, I'm going to do this because I led the league in walks almost every year. I mean, in A ball, double A, triple A, if as a starter, I led the league in walks. And it was always this coordinator came in. Oh, you should do this. And then my pitching coach there would, oh, you should do this. And then another rover would come in. Oh, you should try that. And it was always trying to like put their stamp on me and say, I fixed this guy. He's throwing 100 now in the strike zone. I wish I would have just took more of the initiative on myself. Uh, and did what I did when I got to Japan and said, this is all on me. Um, no one else needs to help me. I need to figure this out on my own. Cause so many guys just have so much to say and I know they meant well and I know they were trying to help, but man, it could be overload sometimes and you only have a short window and you don't know how long you're going to last. I mean, I play with a lot of guys throwing 95 that got released after two, three years and it sucks to see that. It sucks to see someone's dream get shot down. So I would have told myself, stop listening to coaches, figure it out. Maybe stay away from the party machine a little bit. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm sure that had a lot to do with it when I was younger. I think it was more of being in that limelight. And you almost, and I think we talked about this, Jaime, the other day, you feel invincible. You feel like you can do whatever you want and not get caught or not get in trouble. And that's not true. It's, um, it's far from reality. You're no better than the man that's pumping gas at the gas station or the doctor that's, you know, cutting open people and doing open heart surgery. I, 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 we're all humans. We all have our own struggles. And I just feel like, uh, if you want to be good at something, you have to dedicate your time to it. You gotta, you know, it's your craft. You know, you're, you're a, a PT and if you didn't want to be a good PT, you would just kind of go through the motions, but you're always trying to do things better and try new things and experiment. And I think that's as humans, that's what we should do. You know, we we should try to achieve better than what we think in our own capacity. Um, so I, I would probably say stop listening to coaches and, and try a little harder. Yeah. Awesome. That's great. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I think that's all we got for today, but, um, we really awesome. appreciate you doing this, man. Thank you again. Um, let's, uh, let's get together soon. Let's go hit the links or something and go, uh, go play some golf or get together. Yeah. Once my PT guy releases me and allows me to go play golf, I'll, uh, I'll be doing that. All so right. You need, to, <laughs> you need to, you need to talk to your partner. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll put that question on him then. Let's, We're on the uh, road. We're on the road. We're on the road there. We're on the road there, but yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed it. You know, all good things start from the beginning. And uh, I, I believe, you know, you guys are very passionate, you know, former athletes and still can, can play and still probably do a lot of things in, you know, in the athletic field with golf and stuff like that. So keep it up. Don't let this, uh, don't let this thing fade. Keep, keep going and share your knowledge and, and have fun with it. Awesome. Thanks, appreciate guys. it. Really appreciate it. All right. Absolutely guys. You have a good one. Right, Thank you. You too. Have a good night. Wow, what a fascinating interview from Dennis Sarfate. I know, I'm sorry, I, the first thing I do when I see it is I say Sarfate, but Sarfate, he's an Italian, so we got to get it right. Anyways, uh, fascinating interview, really great insight into to the career of just someone who you don't expect to hear from, who went on a roller coaster of events. Uh, just, just an awesome story of him. 
and we just want to uh, wish you guys a great weekend, and we'll probably be coming out with another episode on another Tuesday or Wednesday. Remember, we are working men, so we just do this as soon as we get some free time from the real world. We just appreciate you guys for listening, and let's go. Rally caps on.